Today, I'm excited to have Anne Mirako on the show. She is a co-founding partner at Floodgate, a seed stage VC firm in Palo Alto. She's a repeat member of the Forbes Midas list and the New York Times top 20 venture capitalists worldwide. Anne was one of the first investors in companies such as Lyft and Refinery29 and has been an early backer of many others. Anne is also a lecturer in entrepreneurship at Stanford. I hope you enjoy our episode. Thank you so much, Anne, for joining on the show today. Absolutely. My pleasure. We are about to start Q2 of 2020, and we are in, as many people are saying, unprecedented times. How has your life changed over the last couple of weeks? Wow. Well, I'm now on day 13 of, I guess, coronavirus lockdown, as I would call it. My kids have been homeschooling, and I have three kids, 13, 10, and 8. My husband and I are both working, so it's just a matter of juggling things on a constant basis to make sure the kids get what they need, that my husband and I both get the work that we need to do done. But then also, you know, we have to do everything around the house. So whether it's cooking breakfast, lunch, and dinner, cleaning everything up and helping each other out. So I think it's been on some level, really sort of family bonding moment because we all are pitching in with one another and working together. But on the other hand, it's actually quite stressful too, as you can probably imagine for everyone around that there's just so much to do and not enough time during the day. And then it's stressful because it feels like the fear is all around. Do you think that fear is increasing or decreasing on day, you know, week three or four of this pandemic? I think it's increasing. I mean, I think there's not really an end in sight. And so there's sort of a question of how long will this go on and how bad will it be? How bad will it not be? And so for most people involved in tech, we like to see the data and there isn't a lot of data to be had. So I think we're all flying a little bit blind. And how has this affected your professional life? How has this affected venture capital and floodgate? I think we won't see the real impact of it until really into mid Q2. You know, right now we're sitting at towards the end of March, but even the supply chain won't be truly affected until mid Q2. And then even financing rounds that are being announced right now, term sheets that are being signed, those are an artifact of meetings that started probably in Q1 before coronavirus really hit. And so the real question is, will people continue to fund companies where they've actually never met the founder in person? And it's hard to have that answer because I think we're all doing this for this first time. And, you know, I think as much of an introvert as I like to believe that I am, I actually get a lot out of the human to human interaction of being in the same room together with another person and seeing the way they think. And there's something lost in staring at a screen and seeing that version of a person. I do worry about that and how much of an impact that's going to have, not only for myself, but also for the founders that we've backed. Right. No, that is definitely the case. So how are you? Are you taking new meetings right now with new founders over Zoom, or are you going to push those back to when hopefully you can do them in person? No, I mean, as long as I don't know when I'm going to be able to meet someone in person, I want to meet them sooner rather than later. And so I am definitely taking meetings right now, and I will continue to do so. I believe that I can at least get the gist of the story. I can get a sense of what the company is about, what their critical insights are. My hope is actually the inner optimist in me that believes that we can actually 
do this. So that's my working assumption until I am proven otherwise. And you also teach at Stanford. Were you teaching this quarter or in the spring quarter? I was teaching in both. And so my heart really goes out to those seniors and folks who are graduating. I just can't imagine, you know, spending seven years in your PhD as an example and wondering when you're going to get to defend your thesis, wondering if you're going to get a walk and whether or not you're going to get hooded. If you're, you know, a senior, you don't get that final quarter where you have a chance to really bond with your classmates and relax a little bit. And I know that that's what people were looking forward to. So, you know, my heart really hurts for those students. How do you think if you are a student right now, how would you be handling this situation? You know, probably the way I am right now, you know, I do set up my time on a pretty rigorous basis. And so I keep regular work hours. In fact, this morning I woke up at 4.30 a.m. so that I could teach a class at HBS that started around 5.15. I've been doing my regular work day. I've had sort of lots of meetings starting at, you know, 8 a.m. And I work a full work day. There's some breaks in between to make sure that the kids are doing the work that they need to do to get done. It's definitely less efficient than I would like it to be. I'm trying to take some time in between. I definitely take a lunch break because I have to cook. But I also spend time in the evenings now. I read, I practice piano. (laughs) I sort of feed my own curiosity. And so I think the, the two things I've discovered is keep a regular sort of work hour and then find time to bond with your family or other people you're living with and then find time for your own curiosity. Now, like the beauty is we have a lot of time. And then the other thing that I've discovered is that I can't do Zoom meetings back to back. And so I'm taking actually some of my meetings while walking. Unfortunately, it's been raining a lot. But if there's a moment where I don't need to be staring at a screen and I can be walking, I take that hour to walk. That is smart. And with respect to curiosity, are you using this time to develop new hobbies? Or are you jumping into things that you may not have thought you would have had the time to jump into? Uh, It's actually just sort of exploring different parts of curiosity. So, you know, for me, I've actually always been a pianist. And so now I'm just sort of brushing up on pieces and trying to find new pieces to play. And I like that because it's just sort of, it's kind of my own personal form of meditation. The other thing that I've been doing is actually for my own knowledge gathering, my kids actually have different questions that they'll ask throughout the day. So one of my sons, he's eight years old. He's just very, very interested in the stars and Big Bang Theory. And so we will look at something. And a lot of the videos out there or reading out there is very much geared towards adults, which he just doesn't understand. And so we'll watch it together and I'll try to explain it to him. And so it's a way of chasing curiosity, I guess, which I think is generally very good to do whether or not You're an entrepreneur, venture capitalist, someone who's working at a large company. I think finding something interesting and chasing down knowledge is always a great thing. Totally. And when did you start your investing career? Well, the first time I got into investing was, let's say, September 10th, 2001, because I remember my second day of work was 9-11. I was there for two years. I then went back for a PhD program at Stanford. And then in the middle of that got started with Floodgate in 2008. So I took basically a five-year hiatus getting my PhD and then started again in venture in 2008. And so 
I have a track record of starting funds when a massive downturn is about to happen. So I probably should start a new fund now. <laughs> what have you learned from those two experiences investing you know, after 9-11 and in 2008? What were some of the takeaways that you're applying right now? So number one, I believe that it's not just that markets are resilient. I think that great ideas are resistant to market changes. And so we saw great companies being formed in 2008. We saw great companies emerge out of the 2001 to 2003 timeframe. And so I do believe that there's so much out there that can be done, so much excitement around what is possible that can be hard to see when everyone is talking about doom and gloom. And I think that's why like the best entrepreneurs get started now because they are the hopeless optimists and they are true believers. How do you suss that out from years past? How do you suss out who are the true entrepreneurs? I think that's been harder to date because the markets have been so great. And so everyone's been protected by these great markets. And now we're faced with the potential. And who knows? We are facing a lot of uncertainty of harder times. And I think that's something that susses out the folks who are there to chase a dream in a fairly risk-free way versus ones who actually do want to take on the risk. And I think people who are more risk-averse will go to larger, more stable companies now. Right. And when you look back and reflect on investing in 2001 and 2008, what were your best investments from each of those two time periods? So in the 2008 to 2010 time period, I invested in TaskRabbit and Zimride that eventually turned into Lyft. But some of the ones that we missed, we missed Pinterest, we missed Airbnb also in that time frame. I also almost convinced GitHub to take floodgate money at the time as well, 2008. And what were you know, those meetings like? Do you have vivid memories of you, know, you meeting Zimbride, Pinterest, TaskRabbit, etc.? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, like Leah Busky, I, I basically chased her around trying to get her to take my money. She was the first investment I ever made. I knew she was onto something. There was no word for sharing economy at the time, but there's a concept she was describing that just felt very real, very current. And so we were just desperate to invest in what she was working on. And then I think with Zimride, it, was, it wasn't even Lyft at the time. So it didn't look like Lyft. They were doing a ride-sharing platform and selling to universities. And we just thought that John and Logan were so authentic as entrepreneurs. You know, Logan had been working in the transportation space since he was in college. We just loved the stories that they had to tell about why they were passionate about this space. And we couldn't find any other companies in the space. Airbnb, they were selling more cereal boxes in terms of dollar volume than airbeds. And it was called Air Bed and Breakfast, but it was a really interesting set of founders, not a ton of traction, but interesting concept. Pinterest, this was before the sewing circles were on Pinterest. And so it consisted mostly of Ben Silberman and his co-founders' concepts of what collections might look like, which were not the type of collections you see today on Pinterest. So it was just sort of a really great time for interesting ideas that evolved after that. And so, you know, one of the lessons I learned was you don't just take a look at a company in the form that it is today, but part of it is imagining what it could be. 
And at the time, were these rounds, were they quote unquote hot rounds? You know, you mentioned earlier you had to convince Leah to take your money. No, none of them were that hot. I mean, part of the reason I was paranoid was I was getting started with my venture investing career. But let's be honest, there weren't that many funds either. I think there were maybe four or five funds at the time. Today, there's apparently 800 and then there's 80,000 people who are self-proclaimed angel investors. So the market has certainly changed over that time. And what do you think of first-time founders versus experienced founders? I know you spend your time mentoring, teaching young people. We met when I think I was in high school. High school. A uh, <laughs> uh, long time ago. If you were to look at your portfolio, what percentage of investments are in first-time founders versus experienced founders? And how do you think about that? We probably have slightly more first-time founders than experienced founders. But we kind of like what we call freshmen and seniors. So freshmen are people who are really drawn to an idea. They haven't spent all of their time reading up on startups and, you know, thinking about, should I take an equity round versus a convertible note? You know, they're more struck with the concept of what they're doing, not the idea of starting a startup. And then you could think of, you know, freshmen, sophomore, juniors, and seniors. And seniors to us are people who have really been around the block. Maybe they've had one exit for you know $100 million or greater. They're really looking for another experience to build something great again. And this time, they're going to do it the right way. And so they're looking to partner potentially with a venture capital firm, but they're going to pick the people and the firms that they work with, and they're not going to raise too much capital. And we find actually one or the other works really well for us. So we tend to back those types of people. And I'd love to talk about the, you know, quote unquote, freshmen. What mistakes have you seen freshmen make in the early stages of starting companies? I think it's more like if a freshman now tries to turn into a sophomore and they start reading too much about what it is to build a startup and they start to say, oh, I have to actually, in order to raise my series A, I have to get to X, Y, and Z metrics. And so... I'm going to artificially create those metrics in order to be able to raise my series A round. And instead, like the right question to be asking is, why is it not a natural motion for me to get to those metrics today? Because if I can fix the underlying principle, then I can actually have a scalable business. And so the thing that we're always trying to focus our founders on is not about the next fundraise, but fundamentally, what within your business is not working and how do you fix that? Because that's going to get you closer to those metrics anyway. I think metrics are really at the pre-product market fit stage, a lagging indicator of everything that is going on. It is not a great leading indicator. And so on some level, I might ask for them. But ultimately, the thing that I want to understand most is what's the single thing keeping us from getting product market fit with the customers we care most about? How often, you know, after you do make an investment in, you know, a first-time founder, how much do you let them go and, you know, let he or she, you know, go figure it out versus you checking in with them? So I think it depends. The product development stage, I think venture capitalists can be more destructive than constructive. I'm not sure, you know, if someone's building out a product, whether or not we should be in there saying, well, this is the feature that you really need. Because if I didn't trust the founder to make a great product, then what really was I investing in? I was probably investing in my own personal vision. 
I tend to trust the founder in terms of building out at least the first generation of product until we get our data in. Once actually the product is getting to a point where we can call it a product, that's when I think we start to get involved. And the things that I like to think about is really a framework around how do you build a minimum viable company. For us, we are looking at three part pillars to a minimum viable company. The first tier is, have you built out what most people would call product, but I, I think of it as a series of delight moments you're delivering to customers and users. What does that look like and what kind of work does the customer or user incur to get to those delight moments? And is it a fair trade? So we spend a lot of time as a result of those questions thinking about who are the customers, who are the users, and what is a fair trade? We spend a lot of time then thinking through the ecosystem. So not just the customers and users, but what else do we need? Who else do we need to influence for our go-to-market motion? And then finally, when we also add in pricing, to me, that's business model encompasses not only pricing, but also customer acquisition. And how do you go and find customers and also pay for them? And so the reason we focus on all three of those is, as an example, it would be really easy to give something away for free that's worth $100. People would be thrilled with that, right? But it doesn't mean that, therefore, your product has inherent value. There is an infinite difference between paying zero and paying even a cent. But there's also a huge difference between paying 80 cents for something that's actually worth a dollar and making someone pay a premium versus what it costs you to build. And so all of those factors are things that we're looking for. And then we look for teams that have deep passion for the space that they're in and can tell us why this is their life's work. And then we're looking at the insights that they have that are non-consensus, but right. What are some examples of something recent, a company, a person that where, you know, you learned something from that pitch meeting or that was non-consensus, right? So there's a founder that I backed. We backed him knowing that we actually had some disagreements about fundamentally what we believed in. But actually the core of what we believed, we agreed on. And that was what was most important to me. So the core of what we believed was that education the way it stands today is purely about credentialing. And credentials would not be the core of education in the future. That was something that the two of us agreed on that concept. And based on that, and given his background, I said, okay, I kind of want to see where this takes us. Where we disagreed was actually a pretty significant disagreement, which was, I wasn't sure that people would pay for educational experiences that didn't actually offer a career change or a career trajectory change. My general thesis was, if you look at the way people have spent on education, the only time people spend a lot of money is when they believe it's going to change the trajectory of their ability to earn cash. And so... He believed actually that that might be the case, but that there would be ways in which people would pay for educational experiences. And so as he launched a product, and this product is now called Learn Monthly, 
he was able to show that there are people out there who will pay for interesting and significant educational experiences. And what I realized I had gotten wrong was that in the same way that people will pay a few hundred dollars to run in a marathon, and they will socially share those experiences of training for a marathon, running the actual marathon, people will do something similar with the creative experiences they have if they're learning something interesting. This company has really proven that that is true. And how did you meet this founder? Oh, that's an interesting story. I read about him in the Wall Street Journal. And then did you cold email this person? I I cold emailed him because he had kept a blog of himself learning a bunch of different things on a monthly basis. So he had learned how to do, I think it was a standing backflip, freestyle rap, Hebrew, all of these like different things in a month, the different skill sets in one month. And so the Wall Street Journal had said, learn to play chess in a month and we'll set you up with Magnus Carlsen. And he did it. And he, he did a pretty good job playing against one of the world's best chess players. And so I was just kind of fascinated by what he had done. When I read about him, I assumed he was an entrepreneur because everything about the profile kind of screamed that out. And so I just kind of cold outreach to him and said, I'd be fascinated to learn more about what you're up to. Super interesting. And uh, we got to know that. How often do you do that? How often are you cold emailing people versus the reverse? You know, I like to do that, actually. I like to reach out to people that I think are interesting. When you're just sort of under the receiving end, it's just you're just taking someone's hustle factor and you magnify that. And then sometimes if you take that out of the equation and you're just finding people who you think are interesting, that could be hugely valuable. When I got started in the industry, I used to have this project I would call Project Map, which was meet awesome people. And I would just track the number of awesome people I met in a week. And I actually had a very loose definition of what an awesome person was. It just had to be one of these meetings where I came out of it and I said to myself, wow, I learned so much from that meeting. Like I really got energized by ideas in that meeting. By taking my thought process to that instead of had to result in a deal or we had to exchange deal flow, it made it less transactional and more intellectual. And I think that's the space I like to live in. Are you still uh, keeping your map record? It's hard to do as many as I used to do. So when I first got started, I would have this requirement that I really wanted to meet 10 who I would call awesome people. And they could be people I'd already met. So once you're an awesome person, then hopefully the next time you meet, you're still an awesome person. But I used to try to do about 10 of those a week. That actually has gotten really hard. I think when I've counted and done my own time audits, if I can get to about five in a week, that's really good. And how are you finding these people? You know, very different circles. So some of it is just through my own academic background. So I have my PhD. I also still teach at Stanford. So some of it could come through that. And, you know, once you've been teaching for 10 years, your networks in different circles actually becomes pretty robust. But I also, you know, volunteer my time in different ways. So I've volunteered my time on the board of trustees for Yale. So that also expands my circle into really interesting spaces as well. So I think that that goes back to sort of what I was talking about, like disconnected curiosity. So it's just like, it's not curiosity because I'm really interested in 5G because I believe that there's investments there. 
but it's just sort of you're exploring something because you're just interested in it. And if you start with that assumption, then you can meet a lot of really interesting people along the way because your curiosity is purely driven by that. It's not driven by sort of an inner business motivation. So in the nearly 20 years of investing experience, I imagine, actually, I don't know, do you, do you think that investing is a compounding skill? I wonder, there's a certain element of when you are new to investing, you are hopelessly optimistic about every idea that you encounter. And I think there's such tremendous value in that. Because over time, you've heard these ideas over and over again, and you've seen them not work multiple times. And at some point, you become jaded about certain things. And I think that's a really bad place to be in. And so I believe that venture is all about regaining your optimism on a consistent basis. And I think, you know, when you're new to the industry, you actually have that naturally. And so there's an element of which is definitely not compounding. The parts that are compounding is A, your networks, B, just the cycles that you have seen and the experiences that you've had that make you less jumpy or nervous. And then hopefully like a partnership who stands behind you and will make you feel comfortable when even things aren't going well. And so I think those things are most valuable to me. And the partnership is a piece that is compounding. But I think the optimism part is what is not. Right. No, that makes sense. I want to end on talking more about the freshmen that we mentioned earlier in this conversation. There are tons of people, students that you know don't have a dorm to return to or at home. Yeah. So I want to just dive deeper into that. I've gotten like a handful of texts over the last couple of days. Like, what should I do with my new time? You know, what should I do to keep busy? People are in this uncomfortable state. And I'm curious, what would you tell those people? I would say, number one, you should never be asking that. (laughs) You know, you should always, if you have a moment to think, what should I be doing with my time? You should be serving someone. You should be providing service to an old person by buying them groceries. Like you should figure out a way to serve other people if you can't figure out a way to serve yourself. It's not necessarily the time to start a great startup unless you are totally hopelessly inspired because it's going to be really hard and it's going to be the kill zone. And so you've got to be completely focused completely bought in and completely ready to fight with everything that you have for the company that you're building. So unless someone's ready to do that, which I think if they're asking you, what should you be doing? What should they be doing with their time? They should not be building a startup. They should be reading great books, being inspired by great leaders and serving their community. If they have a great idea and they can't live without it, now you actually have some free time to go build something. Love it. Well, I think that's a uh, great way to end. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely. Anytime, Corey. <laughs>